Today, Edward Shorter takes us on a 200-year journey from the age of spa treatments to the birth of psychopharmacology. Welcome to the Carlette Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlette Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Edward Shorter has been documenting the history of psychiatry for nearly half a century, sometimes writing alone, sometimes with psychiatrists like Conrad Schwartz and Max Fink. We caught up with him from his home in Toronto, Canada, where he shared how the disorders we call depression and anxiety were managed long ago. I take it from reading your books and books like it that there's been some kind of distress that's driven people to psychiatrists for many years and that maybe the name of it has changed, you know, anxiety, depression, neurosis, etc. But it might all be the same condition. Distress itself doesn't really change. This is probably a constant in human affairs, but the labels for it change, and accordingly, the treatments for it, what you just called distress a moment ago, used to be called nerves. Nerves or nervous illness is one of the original diagnoses of psychiatry. And the assumption is that this is an organic problem. Your nerves are organic entities, and there's something wrong with these nerves. There's a physical disorder in the body, in other words. And that's a term now that has gone out of style and been largely replaced with depression. Well, the treatments for nervous illness were not wonderful in those days, but nonetheless, there were treatments. If you were middle class and, and above, you'd be sent to a spa for hydrotherapy. Bathing in spa water, drinking spa water, or having uh, electrotherapy, not ECT, but peripheral applications of electricity, were seen as optimal treatments for nervous disorder. And they were very successful, actually. Going to a, a, a spa was seen as highly therapeutic, even though we look now back at these hydrotherapy with disbelief. How could they have imagined that bathing in potassium water would make them better? But it worked. Where they had all kinds of wraps, for example, they'd take a linen gauze and dip it in spa water and then wrap the affected limbs with it. We say, well, what you're dealing with here is suggestion. But I'm not sure that's entirely true. So at the very beginning of psychiatry, we have nervous illness. And the basic people who treated nervous illness were not psychiatrists who practiced in asylums and were called alienists. They were neurologists and GPs. So that, that's where modern psychiatry starts out, is in the hands of neurology, treating nervous illness. Can you put a date on this range of time? Sure. The whole concept of nerves arises with the rest of clinical medicine early in the 19th century, and nerves certainly dominate the picture right up until about the First World War. And what happens in the First World War? The rise of psychoanalysis. So it's Freud's psychoanalysis that takes over psychiatry. And the analysts had no use for nerves at all. They had no use for any kind of organic concept in psychiatry. For psychoanalysts, the only meaningful entity was the unconscious mind or conflicts within the unconscious mind. And so you could see this would be a dramatic paradigm shift. We don't need nerves anymore. We don't need spas or hydrotherapy anymore. All that is just nonsense. Come to the office, lie down on the couch, and we'll treat you with free association and dream analysis. This seems amazing now to look back over the history of psychiatry and say that this once dominated psychiatry. 
But after the 1920s, it did. Psychiatry was dominated by psychoanalysis right up until the 1970s. Was there uh, something about World War One that spurred this? Not really. I use World War One as a convenient kind of marker. The psychoanalytic ideas diffuse in the United States, for example, after the First World War, and they certainly ruled the roost in Europe even before the First World War. So there's nothing particularly positive about the war itself. But it's at that point in history that psychoanalysis wipes out the rest of psychiatry, wipes out what you might think of in retrospect as the first biological psychiatry. The psychiatry was based on nerves, based on the idea of heredity is what makes people ill. And if you're really sick, we'll put you in an asylum. So that would have been the first biological psychiatry, okay? How is an asylum different from a spa? Well, it's very different because uh, in a spa, the treatment modalities are, are basically water. So spas are based on top of mineral springs, which are the source of the water. And they tend to be in lovely settings where you just respond to nature as such. An asylum, by contrast, makes no use of hydrotherapy at all. In fact, they offer very little in the way of therapy in an asylum. The idea is that admitting you to this treatment facility will in and of itself make you better. And if it doesn't, well, hey, that's okay. You'll, you'll stay here. But they did have moral therapy in the asylums. Is that right? Moral therapy is a, a contemporary term going back to about 1800 for what we call psychotherapy. It doesn't mean that you're treating people's morals. A moral therapy means you're treating the mind. In other words, it's psychotherapy. And that starts out in England, actually, late in the 18th century. But the whole world of nervous illness shoved moral therapy more or less aside. If you have a nervous problem, then you don't really have a mental problem. You have a problem with your nerves. Then you go to spas for the nerves. Yeah. Okay. I take it, if I understand you right, more mild depression and anxiety as we see it today would go to spas, perhaps directed by a neurologist or a primary care doc, and the more severe cases would go to asylums or alienists? The spas refused to accept people with frank psychotic illness. They said that in their publicity, but in fact, they accepted just about everybody because they wanted the money. But yeah, if you had a frank psychosis or melancholic depression, then you'd be a candidate for an asylum and you'd give everybody in the spa, the creeps, they discouraged admitting these patients who would just sit and cry all day. Did spa treatments really work? Some of them featured lithium water, like Lithia Springs in Georgia. 100 years ago, there was no stigma around lithium. It was seen as a health elixir, and President Warren Harding had it shipped up to the White House. But while low doses of lithium may prevent mental health problems, suicide, crime, and dementia are all lower in places that have lithium in the water. We are aware of no evidence that those low doses actually treat anything. Even in the antiviral studies where lithium treated herpes and COVID, they used the same doses we use in mood disorders. But maybe just sitting in the spa water had some healing effects. Hot and cold baths do have anti-inflammatory and other health benefits. And that idea inspired one of the most unusual studies we've seen in psychiatry. In 2016, Charles Rayson and colleagues published a small, randomized trial of whole-body hypothermia for depression in JAMA Psych. Patients sat inside this infrared heating device for about an hour. 
until their body temperature reached 38.5 degrees Celsius, 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit. The control group received a sham treatment, and most patients were not able to tell if they got the placebo sham or the real McCoy. After just one treatment, patients experienced significant improvement in depression within a week, and those improvements continued for six weeks without further treatment, with a large effect size of one to two. Eating the body like this reduces inflammation and improves mitochondrial health, and it also shakes up the thermoregulatory system. In depression, the body stays at a relatively constant and slightly elevated temperature, and this jolt of heat might reset that. Similar therapies have been used in sleep clinics since the 1990s, and this brings us closer to those spas, where a 20-minute hot bath two hours before bed deepens sleep quality. The idea is to accentuate the normal circadian shifts in body temperature that we are missing in the controlled climate modern world of HVACs. When you heat the body up in the early evening and then sleep in a colder room, that drop in body temperature sets the stage for sleep. Dr. Rayson's work was followed by two controlled trials that tested this out in hyperthermic baths using European spas. Here, the body temperature was brought to a similar elevation as we saw in the whole-body hyperthermia study, but it was done by sitting in a spa pool covered in very warm water from the neck down for 20 to 30 minutes in the late afternoon. The exact temperature was 40 degrees Celsius, or 104 degrees Fahrenheit, and after the bath, the patients laid down in warm blankets. The control group in this study got a fake version of light therapy. These baths were repeated weekly, and after four weeks, there was a significant decrease in depression, although the improvements here were much smaller than those found with the infrared passive heating in Rayson's original study. I've tried this hot bath technique at home, and I can say it is not comfortable. It caused my heart to race in a way that felt a bit like aerobic exercise. I guess I was trying to pump off the heat. But I did sleep better than I ever had that night, and I felt great the next few days. I don't recommend it for patients, however, because the evidence just isn't solid yet, and the studies are small, and there are risks of skin burns if the temperature is too hot, and a risk of falling. Blood pressure tends to drop when you get out of a hot bath. If we're tracing the life of the generalized anxiety depressive patient, it goes from spas to psychoanalysis, and then what happens? Then psychopharmacology happens. Oh, and by the way, the psychoanalysts called it would they call it neurosis, like, or what words would they use for these patients? Psychoneurosis was the psychoanalytic phrase for what we would call non-psychotic illness, was known more or less specifically as psychoneurosis. The term has gone out of style because it's associated with psychoanalysis, and among the main psychoneuroses were hysteria and neurasthenia, neither of which exists in psychiatry today. Would you say that's almost identical to conversion disorder? That was Freud's term, was conversion disorder for what other people were calling hysteria. 
by conversion disorder, Freud meant relatively specific loss of the ability to speech, loss of vision, uh, loss of audition. Hysteria was actually a separate concept for the analyst. And it meant the whole idea of hysteria, which you would see basically in women, was that these are symptoms that occur in people who are sexually very repressed. Can you describe the symptoms of hysteria, what it would look like? They were mainly psychosomatic symptoms. Paralysis in those days was very common. Women in particular would become paralyzed. They'd have to take to their beds. They wouldn't be able to walk anymore. Or the upper limb would dangle uselessly. This still happens to some extent, but it doesn't happen very often. What did neurasthenia look like? Neurasthenia starts out as fatigue. The term means tired nerves, literally. But then the, ter- the term is expanded from fatigue to include just about everything else, like mood disorders, phobias, obsessive-compulsive disorder. All of that becomes caught up in the whole neurasthenia umbrella, basically. And regardless, they're trying to treat it by relieving unconscious conflict, I take it. It's kind of the same etiology. But that's the idea. The psychoanalytic therapy helps you resolve unconscious conflict. This is, I think, largely fanciful, but it was what people believed in those days. And it worked, right? It worked. All these treatments. Psychotherapy was like a charm, but it was very expensive, and it was all very often long and drawn out. And a quick course of BCT would work wonders in place of years of psychotherapy. So I imagine spas were very expensive, too. Yeah, if you were poor, you wouldn't be able to afford a spa outside of Central Europe, there weren't government programs to send you to spas. So this is for people who are... We interrupt this podcast for a preview of the CME questions. Earn CME through the link in the show notes. 1. Which disorder was not recognized in Emile Kreplin's diagnostic system? A. Schizophrenia B. Manic depression C. Anxiety disorders D. Mixed states And does anything start to change in the 1940s in how these patients are treated, the non-psychotic distress? Well, what happens in the 1940s is the advent of therapies that really work. And the main therapy that works is ECT. ECT is introduced in 1938. But the early 40s, late 30s also saw a number of treatments that really work, such as amphetamine. Amphetamine is introduced in 1936 in psychiatry. Barbiturates introduced in 1903, they are very effective sedatives. Barbiturates do that very well. They have the disadvantage that they can be accumulated for suicide. Benzodiazepines are introduced in 1960. Librium was the first, and that was the death knell for the barbiturates. Right, because they have similar actions, but I believe the barbiturates are stronger on the anti-anxiety and insomnia side. Yeah, they're excellent treatments for insomnia, for sure. But for what was called then agitation, in the day, they tended to prefer the term agitation to anxiety. Uh, anxiety wasn't such a big diagnosis. In Kreplin's, Emil Kreplin, who was the German psychiatrist, really is the founder of modern diagnosis. But for Kreplin, anxiety didn't even exist as a diagnosis. 
in in his manual of uh, illness, which was basically the nosological guide right up until DSM. There is no chapter on anxiety, and there isn't an entry in the index for anxiety either. I think Kreplin mentions anxiety, but he sees it as a symptom of like mixed states. Is that right? He admits that there is a thing called mixed depression anxiety. That's a disease entity of its own. But freestanding anxiety for Kreplin didn't exist. He saw all illnesses were accompanied with anxiety. Right. It's just a symptom of other illnesses. That makes sense. Keep telling us the story of how we've changed how we treat these folks. So we introduce barbiturates and amphetamines, but we're still using psychoanalysis in the 1940s. Yeah, they, these were referred to contemptuously by psychoanalysts as pills because they had a deadly fear of pills because they saw that pills were superior to psychoanalysis because pills could make people reliably better quickly in a way that the couch couldn't. And so psychoanalysis, Freud's doctrines, ruled the roost in psychiatry right up until the 1960s. And what happens in the 1960s is the generalization of psychopharmacology, which begins in the 1950s. And conventionally, we see psychopharmacology is being kicked off with the introduction of chlorpromazine, largactol, thorazine, in 1952. And that wasn't the first psychoactive drug by any means. But for the first time, psychiatrists and neurologists saw that you can take people who are very sick and make them better with a drug. And you can't do that with amphetamine or barbiturates, really, if you have psychotic patients that don't respond to either of those drug classes, but they respond to chlorpromazine. I believe they, they first used it in mania and psychosis, is that right? Yeah, it was first used for mania, for sure. And then very quickly, it became used for what was called in schizophrenia. And the success of the antipsychotics meant that it was like opening a cornucopia. A whole bunch of them came onto the market, and they became co-prescribed with antidepressants for depression, for example. And so antipsychotics became widely prescribed outside of the domain of psychosis within psychiatry for all kinds of disease conditions. They aren't just specific treatments for psychosis at all. They are a very effective drug class. What you're describing is the antipsychotics became perhaps overused for every condition in the 1960s. And then something happened and they shrunk back, and then something happened and they rose again. Can you tell us that history? Well, antipsychotics, they weren't the first effective drug class in psychiatry. They were the first effective treatment for serious illness, both melancholia and psychotic illness. They had a, a big run. Their popularity tended to be reduced a lot with the discovery in the late 1950s that they had all kinds of side effects, particularly motoric side effects. Symptoms involving the motoric side of the CNS uh, were exacerbated or created with uh, antipsychotics. And so people tended to lay off them to some extent, using them only when they really had nothing else in the armamentarium. And then uh, antipsychotics in our own time have enjoyed something of a rebirth with the discovery that, hey, they can be used in the elderly and they can be used in kids and they can be used in depressed women. and it, co-prescribed with antidepressants. They're very useful adjuncts. But I think earlier you said the in the 60s, I guess that time frame, they were using antipsychotics from depression or anxiety. And I know there was one that was FDA approved, a combo pill of two of them. Yeah, but for a while, antipsychotics were co-prescribed in combo pills. 
But is it fair to say for now that awareness of tardive dyskinesia and these motoric side effects caused antipsychotics to be restricted to more you know, psychosis, more severely ill psychosis in the late 60s and 70s. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, we, we dialed back in the use of antipsychotics. Yeah. Then they rose again as we found that our antidepressants were not so effective as, we, as we'd like them to be. They started FDA approving them which opens up a whole, I mean, once you approve something for anxiety and depression, heck, I could take it. I have anxiety and depression, like anybody has those things. So it really widens the market. So we see a, a rise again of antipsychotics. Yeah, you have to also bear in mind that one of the other things that happened in the 1990s was the growing popularity of ECT for depression. But a lot of clinicians were very uneasy about ECT. And yet they wanted something that would work for their seriously depressed patients without having to send them to the ECT suite. And so the idea of using antipsychotics in connection with Prozac gained a lot of popularity just as an alternative to ECT. Edward Shorter is professor and Hannah Chair in the History of Medicine at the University of Toronto. His 1997 book, A History of Psychiatry from the Era of the Asylum to the Age of Prozac, is a classic that traces the history of psychiatry up to the SSRIs. In 2021, Dr. Shorter followed that up with a history of the post-SSRI years, the rise and fall of the age of psychopharmacology. CME credits for this episode through the link in the show notes and get access to all our articles at thecarlatreport.com, where we have a special offer for our podcast listeners. You can get $30 off your first year subscription with the promo code podcast. That helps us stay free of influence from the pharmaceutical industry and bring you unbiased information you can trust.